Hey everyone, you're listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Ephesians. Enjoy the message. All right, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. So as a church, we're preaching through this book. And uh, I just kind of just mentioned this this morning to the morning congregation that this is a firm conviction that we hold to here at Covenant Grace. Uh, we don't want to be shaped by the culture. Uh, we don't want to be shaped by uh, social media. We want to be shaped by two things, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The Word and the Spirit must shape our lives, and we need to be a people who are constantly coming underneath the authority of Scripture. It is not our place to pick and choose. I know we live in a pick and choose world. You can take bits that you like and you can leave out bits that you don't like. And so you can choose who you want to follow on Instagram and you can reject people that you want to reject and you can copy and paste and you can, you can do all that. You can arrange your life according to what you like. But when it comes to the Bible, guys, when it comes to the Word of God, we sit under it. We do not sit in objection to it or over it or as an authority over the Scripture. No, the Scripture has the final say over our lives. Imagine, imagine if we copied and pasted the bits we liked. Imagine if we picked and chose the bits that we thought were suitable. What would we end up with? I tell you what we'd end up with. We'd end up with a very thin book, and it would be a book that has a God that looks just like you and me, right? Because it would be so comfortable and so suitable, and it would just be so easy. You know, take out all those hard bits, you know, about taking up your cross and follow me and, you know, the bits about sin and repentance and, and hell and, and, and living a life of obedience and, and ordering our sexual desires according to Scripture. Let's, let's move all of those to the fringe and, and let's just create a God in our own image. Imagine. No, the call of God to us is to be a countercultural movement, to be true Christians, which means we are followers of Christ. And if we are followers of Christ, then we obey the teachings of Christ as found in the Word of God. So as we get into the Word tonight from verse 15, what we're going to see is that Paul is building on what he's spoken about previously in the first opening verses. But this, he, he moves to what some call a prayer, and, and really the predominant theme here in these verses is a prayer, but it's intermingled with praise. And so it's a prayer, but it's also praise. And then there are moments where he's preaching. I've been in a few prayer meetings where I've encountered that. You know, when someone prays something really bad, and you then pray, and in your prayer you correct their prayer. Have you heard those prayers? Paul's kind of doing something like that, yeah, because he's writing a letter to a church, and so he's praying for them, and he's praising God for them, and at the same time, he's instructing them, and we learn from this glorious prayer, and so we're going to read it together, and then we're going to answer two big questions. We're going to ask, why is he praying, and what is he praying for? So let's read verse 15. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so the first question we want to ask is, why is Paul praying? And we get the answer immediately in verse 15, where he says, for this reason. And, and those opening phrases send us in two directions. Firstly, they send us back. That's how we use the English language, for this reason, the things I've just said. But they also point forward to what he's about to say. But before we look forward, we need to look back, because he's rejoicing in the reason for their salvation. We must remember as we go through this book and as we get deeper into it, we must never forget the context of the people he's writing to. Remember, this is the people in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was a, a bustling harbor port city, but it was also a pagan city. It was a very debaucherous city. And at the heart of the city of Ephesus was this huge temple the temple of Artemis. And in the center of the temple of Artemis, where they would worship, was a statue of a goddess. And she was the goddess of fertility. And, and many people would come there in their droves, and there would be sexual immorality that would happen 24-7 in this temple. Under the watchful eye of this idol, Diana, the goddess of fertility. And so Paul arrives in this city, this city, he arrives there to come and preach the gospel. And remember, we said that must be quite an intimidating scenario. It's a pagan city, it's full of idol worship, it's full of witchcraft, and it's steeped in sexual immorality. And Paul arrives to plant a church and preach the gospel. And what does he find? He finds that as he preaches the gospel, people are getting saved. Remember, we looked in, in the book of Acts where it talks about this, this moment where Paul goes there and preaches, and guys are like burning their books, and they're getting rid of their idols, and they're melting the gold, and they're selling it off, and they're, they're giving to the church, and, and it's literally revival. Why? What, what is going on? It's the power of God at work. Only God could change these people's hearts. And so as Paul looks back, and he says in verse 17, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He, he's giving thanks to God 
Because it could only have been God who saved them. And we know that from his earlier verses where Paul tells us the reason why this church exists in the first place. The only reason there's a church in Ephesus is because he told us in verses 3 to 14 that the Father chose them. Remember? The Father chose them. The Father elected them. And then the Son purchased them by dying on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit saved them and sealed them. It's a miracle. Salvation is always a miracle. And so he says, for this reason, I'm giving God thanks for you. For your salvation. And this salvation that he's describing is so great because it belongs to God alone. It's not a self-help salvation. It's not a look in yourself and find salvation. It's a salvation that lies completely outside of us. And you know what that says to, to us? It says that all of your sense of self-importance and all of your sense of self-autonomy is stripped away. There is nothing like the doctrine of God's sovereign saving grace to strip us of our sense of self-importance. A.W. Pink, he writes and he says this concerning the sovereignty of God. He says, the truth of God's sovereignty declares that salvation is of the Lord. It removes every ground for human boasting and instills the spirit of humility in its stead. You know, last week was was quite tough because I know some of you have never really encountered the teaching on the doctrine of election or the doctrine of God's saving grace. And I just want to say this quickly because Paul is referencing this. He's saying, for this reason, I'm giving God glory. And that was one of our main points. But if someone asks you, as they often ask me, do you really believe in the doctrine of election? That God chose a people before the foundation of the world. That there is a Lamb's book. That names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. Here's what I want you to say, all right? You don't need to know the whole theology of it. You don't need to know the mysteries of the deep end of the theology of how this all works. Here's what you need to say. Just say this. Say, I believe what God says in Ephesians 1 verse 4 and 5. This is what I believe. I believe he chose us. Here it is. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. I believe in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. At a minimum, that's all you need to say. At a minimum. Just say that's what you believe. Because it's true. It's the word of God. And there are many other verses you could go to. But you don't need to drown swimming in this doctrine and trying to figure it out. So here's why I want to remind us. Because I think Paul is reminding us. He says, for this reason. And then he builds on it. And then he moves on. And he says, what he wants to pray about is this. He says, because I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your faith. In the Lord Jesus. In other words, so he's thanking God for their first encounter with grace. But you and I know that we need grace not just to be saved. We need grace to stay saved, right? 
And so he goes on and he says, I, I don't want you only to know about God's saving grace when you got saved. I want you to live in saving grace. And so he goes on and he prays in verse 17 that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He wants you to grow in grace. So grace not only saves us, grace sanctifies us. Grace saves us and grace shapes us to be more like Jesus. And so he prays. He's saying, I want you to have abundantly a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. What does that mean? That's, that's language that we don't often use. But thankfully, verse 18 tells us exactly what he means. And he says it's this. It's having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Now, I think there are two ways he's saying this. One is, like I said, he is rejoicing at the initial grace, and he is praying for continued grace. And so if it is both of those things, then here it is also both of those things. He's saying, your eyes were enlightened, the eyes of your heart. Did you know that your heart has eyes? Not just your head. That's obvious. You've all got eyes in your head, right? But you've all got Eyes in your heart too. The problem is that before we were Christians, they were blind. And he's saying that the reason you are saved is because your eyes were opened. That's what grace does. Grace comes to darkened hearts. Hearts that are dull and they don't see God. They, they have no wisdom or understanding. There's no insight. There's no wisdom and insight. There's no revelation. And so grace comes and gives you spiritual sight and you see with the eyes of your heart. And then Paul's saying, not only do I want you to experience that once off, I want you to live in that grace. I want you to continue to live enlightened. In other words, I want you to go deeper into this grace. In verse um, 7 and 8, he speaks of this initial saving grace like this. Back in chapter 1, he says, In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. So there it is. It's grace which is being lavished upon us. How? In all wisdom and insight. Inner sight. The sight of your heart. Grace lavished upon you with wisdom. Now I see, and I see that how to live a, a wise life is to please God. And then what's fascinating is he's saying, not only is, is, has that happened to you, he's, he's now praying that that would continue to happen to you. And so he parallels verse 8, God give them wisdom and insight, and he says, I'm praying that you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation or insight. So here's what he prays for, right? There's a long prayer that follows. And so he begins with, for this reason, for your faith, rooted in grace. And then he asks for three things that we're going to look at. And the three things are this. He wants us to know the ground of your salvation. He wants us to know the greatness of our God. And he wants us to know the glory of the church. 
The first one is know the ground of your salvation. Verse 18, have a look again. It says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. Know what? Know the hope to which he has called you. So now this is a different way of speaking about how you became a Christian. That grace that gave you insight, that, that opened your eyes, that came by God's calling. He called you. The Holy Spirit applied the accomplishment of Jesus. Jesus purchased your salvation and the Spirit called you. And Paul's saying, I want you to know the hope around that. The hope around your calling to salvation is an incredible hope. And the reason it's an incredible hope is because it's outside of you. This isn't a hope that initiated or sprung from inside of you. It is a hope that came from the outside. In other words, what a great joy it is to know that salvation lies outside of us. And it comes from the outside in. Imagine if we had to search, you know, pop psychology says, look within to find your true self. Gosh, please, church, whatever you do, don't look within. Because you're going to find something there. And, and if you're honest, you're not going to like what you find. No, no, the message of the gospel is, you, you know the, the condition of your heart. And so look outside of yourself. You need a Savior. Outside of you, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's where our hope lies. Our hope lies in Christ. Not in our own efforts. Not in our own works. Not in our own sense of goodness and how we feel about ourselves. No, that would be a fleeting hope. Imagine if our hope rested on our feelings. One day I feel saved and the next day I don't feel saved. One day I feel close to Jesus and the next day I don't feel close to Jesus. Imagine our hope going up and down. No, no, he wants you to know the hope. He wants you to have open eyes. He wants enlightenment that you may know the hope of your calling. And your calling came from God. God called you. In Romans 8, he speaks of it this way, about your calling. And it's a parallel verse in many ways to chapter 1. And we read where, where Paul writes and he says this, And those whom he predestined, there's that big word again, those whom he predestined, he also called. There it is, called. He called us. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Theologians refer to this as the golden chain of salvation. From beginning to end, who's doing the work? God is. He predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. This is incredible news that God doesn't stop working. He's not like you and I. God finishes what he starts. This is the hope of our calling. Our hope rests in that God, when he starts something, he finishes it. 
How many of you have got unfinished books on your bedside table? Marius, thank you for your hand. I tell you what, when I look at my bookshelf, I, I see a lot of books. Some of you have seen my bookshelf. There's lots of books, but there's lots of bookmarks also. And they're all popping out of all these books. And I'm like, I haven't finished those books. And some of you start projects, and some of you start studying, and you don't finish. My wife keeps reminding me, when are you going to finish this thing at home? And I'm reminded of my frailty and her gracious patience. <laughs> but God, when He starts, he, he finishes. He called us. Know the hope. There was a story. Let me just wrap up point one. There's a story of this UK, this guy who grew up in the UK, and he's kind of like a Bear Grylls. In fact, it may have been the predecessor to Bear. And, uh, and he was an adventurer, and he was kind of like really at the top of his game. He was well-skilled, and, and he went on this extreme adventure, but it was not in the United Kingdom amongst those nice luscious hills. He went to the rugged outback of Canada. And so he was really plunged over his head in terms of uh, reality. And anyway, he, he went with the team, and then he decided he would go further, and he left the team behind. And as he went further and further and further into the forest, he got more and more into territory that he was unfamiliar with. And there were these monstrous glaciers and these huge snow-capped mountains. And he came across this huge lake, but he needed to get to the other side, and he knew that, uh, that he needed to be incredibly cautious as he crossed this lake. And so he applied all his knowledge and skills. And, uh, and as he got closer to this frozen lake, he began to very cautiously you know, put his hand on it and tap it. And, uh, and some of it would give way. And, and he was really nervous about crossing this lake. And so he began to lie down. And, and, and he, he would kind of like you know, almost swim on top of the ice. Because he wasn't sure how stable it was. And, and as he was lying there, he was kind of thinking, I hope no one's watching. And, and he was kind of slowly moving across. And as he kind of just launched off, and, and, and he was trying to figure out if this thing would hold his weight, he heard this raucous noise behind him. And as he looked behind him, there was this team of horses, wild outback horses that were tearing down the path that he had just come down to, down towards him. And he was terrified. And as he, as he was looking, he could hardly take his breath. And these horses literally galloped past him over the lake. Because they knew the season. They, they just they didn't think twice. They just launched onto the lake because they knew it was frozen stiff. And he went blood red as he was lying there thinking, I hope no one's watching. Because if only he had known how firm the ice was, he too could have galloped across. And we, we can know, church, we can know how firm a ground we have because our salvation is not inside of us. It's in Christ. We are saved by Christ, and that is solid ground. Solid ground. Salvation is of the Lord. It's from the Lord. It's of the Lord. You can rest in that. 
you can journey. Life is going to throw a lot of stuff at you guys. Whether it's your health or your future or whatever it might be, life gets tough. But I want to say to you, we are not skating on thin ice. We are on solid ground. And if people challenge your faith and they, they throw new ideologies at you and you go to study at university and, you know, these, these smart guys and they, they, they're trying to undermine your faith, I want to say to you, you have a firm faith. It is solid. It's been tried. It's been tested. It's stood the ground. Know the ground of your salvation. Number two, know the greatness of your God. He not only prays that they would know the depth of their salvation. He prays that they would know the heights of this glorious God who saved us. Verse 90 to 21, he says, what is the immeasurable greatness, we spoke of this, of his power toward us to believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion. He just layers upon layers here of incredible truth. And he's just saying, do you know how great God is? And he's praying for us. He's praying for us that we would know the greatness of Christ. I want to ask you, how big is your view of God? Do you have a small view of God? Do you have a low view of God? Or do you have a high, lofty view of God? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus, in verse 21, is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I want to suggest to you that in Christ we are on incredibly solid ground. Right? Far greater than any prince or king or human or president ever in history. Number three, know the glory of the church. In verse 18, he says that we are to know, he prays that we would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, at first, that is kind of also a, a strange phrase. And we're trying to figure out what is he talking about here. And what's really fascinating is that what Paul is praying for is that we would have a deeper understanding of what it means to be God's inheritance. The church is God's inheritance. Now, earlier in the chapter, in the first few verses, he speaks about us being sealed. The Spirit seals us as a guarantee of our inheritance. And our inheritance is, 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 is future eternal life, eternity with God. But this isn't about our inheritance. This is about us being the inheritance. This is about us being God's inheritance. And, and, and the reality here is that, that we are precious to God. And he's going to protect this inheritance. Because not only did he send his son to purchase this inheritance, but he's going to send the spirit to seal this inheritance. 
And he wants us to know this. Know the glory of the church. The church is wonderful. The church is the body of Christ. You see, when Jesus walked this earth, he had a human body like you and I. And then when he was raised from the dead, he received a glorified body, which is the kind of body that we will all have one day too in eternity. But when Jesus ascended to heaven in his glorified body, he left behind another kind of body on earth, and that was the church, the body of Christ. And mystically, and it is mysterious, but mystically, Jesus is the head and we are the body. And so we are joined to him. The verse, in verse 22, it goes on and it says this, And he put him, I mean, and he put all things under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things, look at this, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so between all of us together, we are the church. We are God's inheritance. He's not going to lose his inheritance. He'll never lose his inheritance. It's secure. But also his inheritance is precious. And I want to say that sometimes we get disillusioned with God's inheritance, don't we? Sometimes we get frustrated with the church. Sometimes we get a little bit irritated with the church. And you get the impression here that, that, hang on, we need to actually just step back from that attitude and we need to rearrange our attitude and, and rearrange our opinion of the church because the church is God's inheritance. And the way we treat the church is the way we treat Christ. Because it's the body of Christ. It's interesting to me that unbelievers make this connection, don't they? Unbelievers often have this objection. Well, if that's the way the church does things, I want nothing to do with Jesus. They make that connection, don't they? We should too. How much more should we make the connection that if the way we treat the church is actually the way we treat Christ? And so ignore the church and you're ignoring Jesus. Despise the church and you despise Christ. There's this inseparable connection. He's the head and we're the body. And so when Paul begins his prayer, and this I close with this, when Paul begins his prayer, he makes this incredible connection in the opening phrase. Look at verse 15 again. He says, I'm giving thanks because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. How do we know that this is an incredible work of God that has happened in Ephesus? We know because of this. Paul saying, I've heard of your faith. You, you say you're Christians, but it's not enough just to say, he says, I know you're Christians. How do I know you're Christians? Because of your love for the church. I've heard of your faith. Yes, you've got faith, but faith without works is dead. I've not only heard of your faith, I've heard of your love. Your love for the church. You don't only, you don't only love Jesus, you love the body of Christ. 
Guys, this is serious. I, I want to submit to you that this is really serious. And the reason it's serious is because it's so countercultural. Because you get hurt in the church, and you get disappointed in the church, and you get let down, and, and, and things don't always go the way you want it to go. And, and the church can get really irritating because, hey, we're all different types of people. But you know what's so good? What's so good is that this is what's good for us. What's good for us is that we have faith in Jesus and love for the saints. Imagine if we only loved the people we liked. Imagine if we only loved the things that we love. Would we really be free? Would we really be truly Christian? Would we really be enjoying community as it's meant to be? Do you know, sometimes the most beautiful aspects of Christian community are when you discover someone who's not like you and you see the beauty of God in them and their gifts and their character. Imagine how boring life would be if you only hung out with people like you. This is the beauty of the church. Now, before you get the wrong conclusion, and you might think, oh, well, you know, you need to have faith in Jesus and you need to love the church. I want to say to you, everyone has faith, the believer and the unbeliever. And whatever you have faith in, you behave according to that. And you shape community around your faith. And so your faith might be in yourself and your community might be you and your mates. When your faith, everyone has faith. Even the atheist has faith. They have faith that there is no God. There's no evidence whatsoever. So don't be afraid of the atheists, right? They say, oh, you guys, you guys have faith as if they don't. You need to say to them, no, no, you've got faith too, pal. In fact, I think you've got more faith than I do. Because my faith is rooted in an historical person, Jesus Christ. Whereas your faith is rooted in illogical nonsense. Here's what I mean. Have you ever heard of such nonsense that something can come from nothing? If ever there was nothing, there would still be nothing, right? Nothing can't make something. That is completely illogical. They've got huge faith to believe that. Huge faith. And then they've got a community that they move in, don't they? And they love that community because it reinforces their faith. But God's designed this to be this way. And as the church, we have faith in the Lord Jesus. And when you have faith in the Lord Jesus, you have love for the saints. And the love for the saints helps you in your faith in the Lord Jesus. This is a beautiful thing. It's the way God's designed the church to flourish. And so this is Paul's prayer. That they would know the hope, the ground of their salvation. That they would know the greatness of God. And that you would know the glory of being the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. I pray that the same could be said about covenant grace. I've heard of your faith, but I've not only heard of your faith, I've heard of your love for the saints. Amen.
Let's pray that right now. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight, Lord. We thank you for this beautiful prayer of Paul's. And we want to echo these words. We want to say, Lord, let this be true of us. Lord, we want to, we want to dig deeper into our faith. We want to double-click on what it means to be saved. We want to, we want to mine the depths of your grace, Lord, so that we would know the ground of our hope, the firm foundation that we're on. Lord, we thank you that this is not sinking sand. This is not thin ice. But our faith is rooted and grounded in historic fact. It's rooted and grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. And so we thank you, Lord, that we can experience both faith and love. And I pray, Lord, that you would establish us as a church, that people would hear of our faith, that they would hear of our community, our love for one another. And so, Lord, help us, Lord. Help us by your Spirit tonight to think deeply about these things. And to be moved with conviction. That we would love you more, Lord Jesus. And that would flow out in love for one another. In your name we pray. Amen.